Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Party back there, it sounds like, coming in there. Turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 5, please. I have to tell you, one of the, uh, the benefits from sitting up toward the front during worship is to hear your voices coming this way during worship. Uh, and particularly that one song where we switched it from uh, I love, I love your presence uh, to we love, and then to hear you guys saying it's just really sweet. It's really good. So what a blessing. Um, good job, choir. You did well. Uh, as I said, we are in uh, Mark chapter 5 today. Uh, Gospel Mark, New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through your Bibles, if you're not familiar. And, and I hope everyone here understands that like, you don't have to put some show on for people. If you don't know where it is, just turn to the front. Look at the table of contents. Like, you'll learn it eventually, but why? Like, no, I'll just listen because the, just turn to the front and look, all right? Or, or take your neighbor's Bible from them, you know? If they already found it, just steal their Bible and you'll be good to go. Uh, we are in, if you will, part three of a series of uh, studies that Mark has lumped together. What Mark has done is, is put together four accounts. Now remember, Jesus did tons of things, but these were four in particular that stood out to Mark. And Mark's brought these together for us and presented them to us to show us Jesus's supreme authority over each of these different areas. And it goes back to chapter four. And at the end of chapter four, you recall that we were looking there. What we learned was Jesus had power over the natural world. They're in this storm. They're crossing over the Sea of Galilee. It looks like everyone's going to die. The disciples wake up, Jesus, don't you care about us? All these things. And Jesus, with a word, calms the storm. And we see there the disciples are blown away by that. Who is this? That even the storms obey this guy. And so Mark points out to us, demonstrates to us, a key lesson that we need to know about our Savior is that Jesus has supreme authority even over the natural world. Then, as you recall, they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they encounter this demon-possessed man, a man who we learned had many demons. The man was going by the name of sorts or the title of Legion, which could have been anywhere 2,000 to 6,000 demons or so. And either he had that many demons or he has so many we stopped counting. But the point is that this guy was in the grip of the demonic. So much so that the people didn't know what to do with this man anymore. And he eventually, they put him out eventually to live amongst the tombs. And Jesus speaks a word and the man is healed. And so Mark uses that to show to us that Jesus has supreme authority even over the spiritual realm. Even over the unclean spirits. Well today we're going to look at a third and fourth instance which every time in our study of the scriptures, as we look in Matthew, as we look in Mark, as we look in Luke, they're always lumped together. There's this event that is occurring, sort of an interruption, and then the event, the first event, concludes here. And we're going to look at them, and we're going to see a couple of things about the Lord here, is that Jesus has supreme authority over disease, sickness, and that he has supreme authority even over death. And Mark puts all four of these together. It's part of, if you will, this four-part series that Mark has presented to us, and it's the lessons that the Lord would have for us today, uh, even here. And we're going to begin today in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Let's pray together before going to the passage. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you indeed do have supreme authority over all things. Lord, that as your children, we can rest in your care. And Lord, even when it seems that circumstances and events and things that are out of our control and um, things we'd prefer not to have in our lives when it seems like these things are in complete control. We know that you are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use our study today to cause our hearts to rest in you, even in the midst of uh, those helpless and hopeless circumstances we'll consider. And so bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you look at the disciples there in the Sea of Galilee, as you look at the demon-possessed man and the townspeople of that man's community, and as we're going to look at today uh, with a man whose daughter is sick and on her deathbed, and then a woman who has been sick uh, for 12 years, diseased for 12 years, each one of these situations to me shows us a helpless individual that has now moved into the place of a hopeless individual. 
a helpless individual. I've tried everything I can. There's nothing left to do, and thus there is no more hope for that individual. And we're going to look at these because for both of these folks that we're going to look at today, the logical response would have been to give up. And maybe they even did give up. But then word came that there's this Jesus. And Jesus let just a little bit of light shine into that hopelessness. And based on that little bit of light, they'd stepped out in faith and Jesus Christ intervened. I don't want to ruin the story. We're going to get there today. Let's read here. It starts in verse 21. It says, Now when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and Jesus was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. Now we'll stop there. The parallel passages for this study is Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 8. And as I've been saying all along, you may want to take some time, go to those passages, see if there's a little bit of insight that is given to you from reading those that maybe we don't have in our Mark passage. It's just a good and healthy thing to do as we're studying the scriptures. And according to Matthew 8, Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, Matthew 9, Luke chapter 8, and now here in Mark chapter 5, Jesus has returned from the eastern side of the Galilee, where the Gentiles live, and he's back now on the western side, or the northern side of the Galilee, in this case where the Jews are living. And as has been regularly the circumstance and situation, Jesus comes on the scene and a crowd of people gather. And they begin to press in on him. We read that in verse 21. It says, A great crowd gathered about him as he was beside the sea. Now, in our English Bibles, that doesn't sound so bad. A little later, however, the word that's going to be used is thronged or pressed in on him. It's a word which is sometimes used for suffocated. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where so many people are pressing in on you, you're beginning to feel suffocated. And you, I better get out of here pretty quick or I may die. Well, that's the word that is used to describe what the people are doing to Jesus. They're pressing in on him so much so they're even suffocating him. It's a word which is commonly used to describe a mass catch of fish in a net. And so you got, you know, a million fish that are inside of this net flopping around, pushing, banging into one another. That's what's going on in this particular scene here as Jesus is now back on the Jewish side of the Galilee. The people are gathering about him. And I take some time to emphasize that point because even in the midst of that, you've been maybe in those types of crowds. I don't know if you're a Black Friday shopper. Some of you are loons, and you'd like that. I don't know what you're thinking. All right, but you go out there, and it's like, all right, Elbow City, here it comes, you know, and I got to get that TV for $50 off or whatever. And so you're pushing, and you're shoving, and you're trying to get there, and you really can't get to that spot you want to get to often. I tend to be able to get there if I need to, um, but the average individual can't get there. All right, and so here you have a man that gets there, and I think that's significant. Everyone's pushing, everyone's pressing, everyone's suffocating him like a bunch of flopping fish in a net, and one man gets there. As we see that in verse 22, it said, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, his name was Jairus, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. Jairus, the, one of the rulers of the synagogue, so desperate to see Jesus, so desperate to speak with Jesus that he puts aside all the niceties. He's throwing elbows too, no doubt. He's going to get there. And I'm sorry, kid, move over. All right, your mom will pick you up. You'll be fine or whatever. And he's going to get there to the feet of Jesus because he's desperate to be at the feet of Jesus. Look at verse 23. We see the reason for his desperation because as verse 23, it says his daughter is sick. It says there, look, then this man came and earnestly he implored the Lord. That means he begged the Lord. He pleaded with the Lord, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. Now, I suspect that this man this, and his wife, they probably did everything that you and I as moms and dads have done with our kids. We try everything with the kid, and we've called the doctors, and we gave them the medicine, and, you know, I don't even know. My wife did it. All right, but I stood in the other room, and I encouraged her. You know, you can do it, honey, or whatever. And then finally, it comes to the point 
we need to get real help. I remember when our son was sick, he was about 10 months old, and he uh, developed pneumonia as a little baby. And a little baby can't tell you what's going on here, and we're watching, we're observing, we're trying, we're calling doctors and nurses, and finally we were told, you need to bring him to the hospital. And a poor kid, there were no more little blue robes for him. He had a little pink robe on, the little kid. So pitiful. And they put all the things into his arms, and they put him in this little bubble to breathe air into there, and all these things. There, there comes a point where there's nothing, even as well-meaning as you are, you can do. You, I, I don't know what to do any longer. And so this dad, this mom, they had done everything they possibly could, and the last thing they realized they could do, go to Jesus. We, somebody, you need to go to Jesus. Now remember, he's a ruler of the synagogue. Remember what we learned. What, did the, what had the priest decided what had the religious leaders decided about Jesus they had decided now he's persona non grata we don't like Jesus we've made an official decision Jesus is not a good rabbi Jesus doesn't play by the rules Jesus doesn't understand remember last time Jesus was in the synagogue we don't know exactly what city they're in we assume that since they left Capernaum went to the other side they came back to Capernaum but we don't really know that but quite possibly, this synagogue that this man is the ruler of is the very one that Jesus had a problem with a chapter earlier, where essentially Jesus was driven out of that particular synagogue. And here is this ruler of the synagogue abandoning all of those things, and he's coming to Jesus because he's desperate or he's hopeless. And Jesus is giving him a glimpse, a glimpse I should say, of hope, a little bit of a glimmer. And for this man, the stakes are too high not to go to Jesus. The stakes are too high to hold on to his pride that says, no, we don't like Jesus. He's got to. And you know what? Regardless of what people may say about me later on, I'm going to Jesus. And I'm going to fall down before him and see if he would be kind enough to come with me. You remember the ruler of the synagogue was a pretty powerful person, influential, in a particular community, in a Jewish community. Now, they weren't necessarily the head, even though they're called the ruler of the synagogue, they weren't necessarily the head of the synagogue, but they were the ones that caused the synagogue to function and to operate. They were thus one of the most important and most respected men in the community. And with that came a bit of power and a little bit of influence, and they tended to be a pretty well-to-do individual. Oftentimes, a synagogue in a community was in the home uh, of the ruler of the synagogue, which means this guy probably had a pretty large home that could accommodate a number of people to come into that home. And all of those things were instantly at risk by his going to Jesus. But none of those things mattered because his little girl was sick. Who cares about all those other things? My little girl is sick. And in this moment of desperation, as his daughter is dying, he goes to Jesus, and I'll deal with the fallout later on. He's a frenzied father who can't do anything else but cry out to God in this instance here, and he's unashamed to do so. And so he goes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. Please come home. Come with me to my home. Heal my daughter. Luke tells us that this was his only daughter, though I'm not quite sure if that matters. Well, I got three more. No, I mean, you know, but Luke points it out that this is his only daughter, he loves this little girl, no doubt. I'm sure, like my daughter has, she's won his heart. He just loves this little girl. And he's desperate. It says in 23, it says that he implores Jesus earnestly. That literally means he begged Jesus. He begs the Lord. All, this guy is one of the leading people of society. And yet he's humbled himself. And he needs Jesus' help. And Jesus goes with him. Now, on the way there, we haven't read this yet. Maybe you have in, in your past. But on the way there, Jesus delays. Can you imagine? We've got to get there fast. Why are we stopping? Why are we talking to other people? Everybody get out of the way. We have to be somewhere. I can't help but that Jairus is probably thinking, please, we have to go. Uh, look, I'm sorry other people have problems, but right now my problem has to be number one. My daughter's dying. And yet there's a delay. Let's read it. Verse 24. Now a great crowd followed him, and they thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. 
For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd, and he said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him, and she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now we're going to put the man aside for a second who has come uh, regarding his daughter. Uh, But before we do, just imagine um, the throngs of people slowing down traffic and all that. Then Jesus stops and said, Who just touched me? And I can't help but think this guy is like, please, who cares? There's a million people here. And then he, he's, it says he's just sort of looking around for the one. That's really how it's worded. He's looking around for her who touched him. And then she comes up, she apologizes. And again, imagine the guy through all of that particular process. We'll talk about it a little bit as we continue to go on from here. But we have this situation. A woman that has to get to Jesus She's in a helpless situation of her own. She's had a a vaginal discharge of blood for 12 years that it says to us. Now, that condition uh, would cause a person to be unclean, according to the Old Testament, for the week or so that it was taking place. She has now been unclean for 12 years. That condition would cause her to be put away from others, typically for a week or so or less, in this case, 12 years. That condition would force her out of the synagogue just for a week or so, in this case, for 12 years. That condition is rumored around the community that God is judging her, probably because of some immorality on her part, sexual morality on her part, and so that would linger with her now for 12 years. All of these things are coming against her for 12 years, but she hears of Jesus. Tradition tells us, we have no record of this in the Bible, but tradition tells us that this woman lived in Caesarea Philippi, which was to the north. We go there when we go to Israel, and it's like a two-hour bus drive to get there now. And so I imagine walking, it took her days and weeks in her weakened condition as she was to get down there. And somehow word, if this is indeed true, had filtered up into that northern little enclave of Jews up there, and she heard about this Jesus that heals And she figured, I have to get there. And I imagine she found her way to Capernaum only to find that Jesus isn't there. He's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then word began to filter back, hey, that guy you were mentioning is here. And she's desperate. She has to go to him. And she reaches out to him. We read the passage here, hoping to be unnoticed. She just wants to get in, touch him, get out. She experiences the healing. But notice what verse 30 says, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched me? Her plan was to get in and to get out, and yet Jesus here stops everything. Our passage begins, And there was this woman. We don't even know her name. Tradition says it's Veronica, but we don't necessarily know whether that is her or it isn't her. And she's unclean, as it says here, for these 12 years. No doubt, she searched her heart because the tradition was, you must have sinned. And so no doubt she searched her heart again and again and again. What did I do? Why is God so angry with me? What is my sin? And no answer ever came back. Well, it was this or it was that. I'm sure she prayed many times to the Lord, Lord, you know my heart. You know that I've tried to put away every sin that I could possibly think of, and yet, Lord, why? Lord, please, will you heal me? She did everything. It goes on to say that she went to many doctors, which is good. You should go to many doctors. Um, It's not just a matter of, well, I'll just pray about it, and I'll get better, or something like that. If You can pray about it and then set up an appointment and go to the doctor as well. And she goes to many doctors that it says there, many physicians as we do, spent all of her money there. Uh, She spent a lot of money there at her particular doctors. And the passage says that none of them were able to heal her. In fact, notice what it says there. Not only was she no better, but she actually grew worse. 
because some of their techniques were indeed primitive. They were ideas that we would look back at now and be like, you do what? But that was the ideas that they had come up with. And some of those practices, I have to imagine, actually, well, it says, made her worse, made her sicker uh, as a result of doing them. I, I was looking here uh, at some of those. I wanted to re read one in particular, just to give you an idea of these practices. For a condition like this, the doctor would instruct the patient to go out into the field and find a pile of donkey's dung. The, yeah, I know. The patient would then search through that dung to find an undigested piece of barley grain, which they would then consume with the intent of bringing healing. All right, so they're coming up with all kinds of ideas. Try this. What? No. You know, I, I'm okay. All right, and I can't imagine such a practice is very good for a person. But as desperate as this woman was, no doubt she tried that practice too. If, if that's going to heal me, I'll do it. And so she had been to many doctors, and of course, despite their inability to help her, they kept sending her the bills. And so she had spent every single dollar, or whatever, the shekel that she could spend here. It says she had spent all that she had. And she has now no money. And even if there are additional remedies that people have come up with, she doesn't have the means now to try those out any longer. And so she has become just like that desperate father that we considered a moment ago. She has come to the end of herself. And she's come to the end of all of her efforts and all of her abilities. And the only glimmer of hope left for her now is this Jesus that she's heard about and has traveled so far to see. Look, look at what it says in 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She had heard the reports. Maybe that's why some of you are here this morning, because you've heard the reports about Jesus. You know someone that Jesus has been working in their life. Maybe they're a very different person than they were just a little bit ago, and you've heard the reports. Maybe some of you, you've grown up in the church, you've wandered a bit, but you've heard the reports. You've seen people that have been in the Lord for many, many years and can testify of his faithfulness. And you've heard those reports and you've come. I want to encourage you, if that's you, keep moving toward him. This woman would not be dissuaded. And she kept moving and she kept moving and she kept moving until she should get to Jesus. Now remember again, throngs of people. And okay, Jairus is throwing elbows here, but this is a feeble woman. She had a blood issue for 12 years. She's not going to be the strongest woman that is out there or individual that is out there. And she will not be stopped. She's going to get to Jesus so that she can just touch the hem of his garments. I, I, I sort of imagine that initially she's polite and she's kind of waiting on the side. And then this guy Jairus comes and butts in front of everyone and is taking him away. And she's like, no, he's not going anywhere. I'm getting there. And so she might makes her way there, and she's not going to bother him in the sense of interrupting him. Obviously, he's going somewhere. But also, perhaps, there's this attitude of, look, I'm a sinner. That's why I'm in this condition. Even though we are sitting here, and we're like, no, we know what's going on. It's not that. But that's what people have been telling her. And so if I go to Jesus and say, can you heal me? How do I know this guy? What if he's going to look back at me and say, he, no, you're getting what you deserve. And so she's secretly going to go to him. Maybe she's thinking, look, I'm an unclean woman with this discharge of blood for 12 years. This rabbi's not going to touch me. And so I need to do it secretly. Maybe it's a whole bunch of these types of things going on. But this woman simply wants to get to Jesus. And she's... Uh, going to do so no matter what it takes. Whatever her reason is, she comes up with this plan. If I could just touch his garment. Now, Jesus never taught anywhere that come touch my holy garments and you shall be healed. As people teach those things today. We, a few years ago, we had Ben Spencer here um, from Croatia. He's a missionary in Croatia that our church supports. And I was reminded of when my wife and I happened to be in the city of Zagreb where uh, ben is currently ministering and I remember we went to this church 500 year old church or something and they have the holy relics in this church bones of these saints that have died over the years and people will come in to touch the box that is holding these holy bones so that they can have healing and things like that that's not what the Bible teaches 
And yet we've come up with these ideas, in we meaning human beings, we've come up with these ideas here. That's not what Jesus ever taught. Jesus didn't teach, come touch my holy garments and you will be healed. This is something that either, you know how rumors are. You know, someone came, I touched his shoulder. Oh, was he wearing clothes? Ah, and now I understand. You know, and it just sort of spread and morphed. And somehow this lady came to the conclusion, if I can get to him and touch the hem of his garment. The hem of his garment for a Jewish male uh, would have had essentially this little blue threaded thing painted there on the hem, of, not painted, but threaded in there on the hem there. And it would have been part of their prayer shawl. And so she essentially says, I'm going to touch that little area that, you know, speaks of this man's righteousness. Remember that passage where Jesus said that the religious leaders like to have real big, thick uh, edges to their whatevers? You know the story um, there. Well, so it, it, it spoke to the person's righteousness. And I imagine Jesus had just this little thin one because he doesn't need to impress any of you or anyone else. And she just says, I just want to grab it. And that'll be enough. That became, if you will, her point of faith. It's a primitive faith. She doesn't fully understand all of these things, but nonetheless, it became a point of contact for her to place her faith. And it was instantly rewarded. Look at verse 29. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. How remarkable would that be? After 12 years, she knew, I've been healed. In just an instance. Now, according to the thinking of the day, and even the Old Testament teaches this, when one who is unclean touches one who is clean, the one that is clean becomes unclean, not the other way around. You catch all that? I had to write it down with charts or whatever because it's confusing. It's like a tongue twister here. And yet the exact opposite happens here. She becomes clean from touching Jesus, not the other way around. And I can't help but think, that, isn't that the same thing for every one of us as sinners? We're sinners, big sinners. We have a lot of sin. And we go to Jesus, and we become clean by touching him, not the other way around. This woman knows that she's been healed. Notice also the Lord knows that healing went forth. Verse 30 says, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? Somehow Jesus knew the healing went forth from him. Lots of people touched his garments. Lots of people bumped on into him, but, uh, shoulders with him. And yet Jesus asked this question, somebody touched me. Now, doesn't Jesus know who touched him? He's God. Of course, Jesus knows who touches him because he is God in the flesh. So Jesus asked this question for a different reason than we might suspect. Jesus doesn't ask the question for himself. I'm going to suggest to you he asked the question for her and for others that are in the crowd. That he asked this question of who touched me. That word touched there can actually mean clutched. So the idea isn't, you know, who bumped into me? But the idea is, who grabbed a hold of my garment? And we have here, and he looked around for who it was. Some of your versions translate it a little bit better. I think King James does this. He looked around for her who touched him. He knew exactly who it was. And so he's stopping, and he's sort of like, now where does she go? Because she tried to slip away, and he's trying to catch contact with her. There she is. Who touched me? He says, and he brings her forward into the crowd. It's so interesting, I think, because as we've been studying Mark, we see this. Every other time Jesus did a healing, what does he tell the person? He says, don't tell anybody. This is just for you and me. Okay, you want me to help you? I couldn't walk yesterday. I can walk today. And somehow I'm supposed to not tell anybody. Okay, I'll do my best, you know, or whatever here. And yet in this instance, Jesus says, hold on, let's stop everything. I want you to come right here in the front. I want everyone to know what just happened. It's certainly a unique situation here. Who touched me? Now, the disciples don't get it, as they oftentimes didn't, just as we oftentimes don't. And they, they kind of rebuke Jesus here. They sort of scold him. They, they, they're kind of like with him, that's a dumb question. And they say that, essentially. They say, who touched you? You're in a crowd of people suffocating you, pressing in on you. What kind of question is that? Who touched you? The real question is, who didn't touch you? Is, is what they're thinking here. 
And the disciples, they don't realize what the Lord absolutely realized. That there's a very big difference between touching the Lord because of physical proximity and touching the Lord because you're desperate to do so. And that's what this woman was. She was desperate. Many touched the Lord in our day. Many touched the Lord that day. But only one reached out to the Lord that day. In this instance here, it's the woman. And the disciples, they just didn't understand that difference yet. They didn't understand the difference between casual contact with Jesus and reaching out in faith to Jesus. And if I could make application, I suspect there's a bunch of folks that are with us this morning that don't understand the difference between casual contact on a Sunday morning with a bunch of people with Jesus and reaching out and clutching Jesus Christ. And thus, you have never truly began a relationship with him. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you, you sit here at times or you walk through the halls and you wonder, what is going on with these people? Why are they so excited to be here? Why do they smile? Why do they enjoy one another? Why do they sing at the top of their lungs? And you just don't get it. You just don't understand it yet. May I suggest to you, it may be because you're just simply bumping into Jesus. You're having casual contact with Jesus, but have never truly begun a relationship with Jesus Christ never come before him and reached out to him in faith that he would wash you of your sins and cleanse you. If you haven't done that, you need to do that. And I would exhort you, search out your heart. Where are you with the Lord? Now, as I said, and, and the passage says, this woman's plan is to slip away quietly. I just want to get in, I want to get out. But the Lord's plan, altogether different, which I'm sure the Jairus loved, her plan, again, was to draw no attention to herself, but Jesus' plan is to draw all the attention to her, to stop everything, and to get her front and centered, uh, center, if you will. And the reason is, I think, is because Jesus desires so much more for this woman. She had come all this way, not for heaven, not for forgiveness of her sins or those things. She'd come all this way for physical healing. And that's what she found. But Jesus wanted so much more for her. Jesus desired for her a spiritual healing in her life. And he provides a public opportunity for her to come to that place of healing. Again, he asks that question, who touched my garments? And again, in his omniscience, he knows. Omniscience, all-knowing, he knows these things. But he asks it for her. And I think he also asks it for the others, particularly Jairus. Because in a moment, Jairus is going to have news come to him that will rock him like nothing has ever rocked him. And it would do the same in our lives as well. Jesus wants more than physical healing for her. And he wants to encourage Jairus as well. I don't think Jesus called her out to embarrass her. I certainly don't think he called her out to discipline her. How dare you touch my garments? You didn't even ask. Come in a touch. He's not disciplining her, but he wants her to know for certain why she was healed. Because if she had left at this particular moment, went back to wherever it is she came from, and people said, Hey, I've been seeing you around more. Is everything okay? I heard you had been sick, and you know, I'm sorry we didn't talk all that time. And he said, Yes, there was this guy. Let me tell you, if you ever have a problem, just get to near him and touch his garments, and you'll be good. And so he's correcting her thinking here. It's not about the garments. He, he steps in and he says to her, it's not about the garments, it's about the one wearing the garments. And then he'll commend her notice, notice I should say, he says, it was your faith. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Touching my garments didn't make you well. Your faith has made you well. First reason he, he deals with her. Secondly, Jesus calls her to identify herself because he wants her to go from this place in peace. Had she left this place secretly, no interaction whatsoever, it's quite possible, if not probable, that she would have forever gone forward, I hope nobody ever finds out what I did, thinking she had done something wrong and hoping that, you know, one day somebody's going to call me out for touching a rabbi when I was in an unclean condition and I'm going to get in trouble. Leaving there thinking that she stole a healing from Jesus. But what does Jesus say to her? He says to her, go in peace. You didn't do anything wrong. Matter of fact, I'm commending you for your faith. Second reason. Third reason I think that Jesus calls her front and center is for Jairus. 
Because as I said, he's about to get gut punched with some of the hardest news that any of us as parents or people that love others could hear that our loved one has suddenly or has died. And that the case has turned from helplessness to hopelessness. And now in this instance is completely without hope because the child is dead. Jesus wants him to see that this hopeless situation of this woman, she's found hope and she's been healed. He says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Her confession has brought, if you will, a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now let's return back to Jairus. Don't forget we began with him. I can't help but think he's freaking out. Hurry up. Maybe he's on his best behavior not to say, why are we waiting? Lest Jesus say, oh, you know what? I have somewhere else to go. If you're going to have that attitude, then I'll take You know, he's on his best behavior here. And he's trying to be as nice as he possibly can. Let's read. It says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the little child was, and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which in Aramaic, that is Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, and she began walking, because she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat chicken soup or something like that verse 35 while he was still speaking Jesus your daughter your faith has made you well talking to this woman there comes now messengers to Jairus and notice what they say they say why trouble the teacher any further your daughter has died why trouble the teacher any further and I imagine Life is over in so many ways for this guy. Because there's no going back from death. Someone's sick, maybe they'll get better. Hopefully they'll get better. Maybe the doctors will figure something out. But when someone dies, they die. And it's over. And you can see that sort of in their words. They say, why trouble the teacher any further? You see, any further. It's like, it made sense to trouble him earlier, but it's over. Why bother? You were too late. Maybe if you came to him a little bit earlier, maybe if he didn't delay, but unfortunately it's over. She died. And in there, again, is this presupposition that Jesus has the power to heal sickness, but once death enters in, his power has ended. And what's Mark's point in these four stories put side by side? Jesus' supreme authority over nature. His supreme authority over the spirit world and the demonic. His supreme authority over disease. And Mark's using this story here to show Jesus' supreme authority even over death. I love these next words because it shows us Jesus' heart. Well, look at this. It says, but overhearing what they said, Jesus says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Look at Jesus. He senses what's going on. He anticipates how the man is going to respond. And he intervenes beforehand. He preempts things beforehand. And he calls to the man before the man has really any opportunity to completely register all that is going on. And he says to him, do not fear, only believe. The Lord is good. See the, his goodness in this passage, how much he loves us, how much he cares for us, how selectively he ministers to each one of us according to our needs. You can imagine the, man's quickly gonna, the man is quickly going to fall to the ground, but Jesus quickly gets in there and he says, do not fear, only believe. The opposite of fear in the Bible is faith. It's trust. 
And Jesus says to this man, look, you came to me trusting that I could heal. Keep trusting me that I can do so. It's important that you know, it says only believe. The original tense is only keep on believing. You came to me believing. Even maybe it was a little bit of belief, but you came to me believing. Keep on trusting me. Keep on believing me. And certainly the circumstances could have challenged him to do so, as they would every one of us. But Jesus says, keep on believing. And that little word, a couple words there, it brought hope to this man. And notice he goes with Jesus. He's not mad at him. Well, why bother? I'm going to go off into the to the field and sit under a tree and deal with this particular issue. But that little word, keep on believing, is enough for the man, his mustard seed of faith, if you will, to go with Jesus. Verse 37, and so Jesus, they get to the man's house. He allows no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They come to this house of the ruler of the synagogue, and they encounter a commotion of people, people outside that are no doubt broken over this little girl that had died, aunts, uncles, and others like that, but also professional mourners of sort. It was common in the Jewish culture, particularly for a guy like Jairus, was a man of means. And to, to really just demonstrate, it was just the norm of what they did, to really just demonstrate how saddened, saddened we are at the loss of this person, in this case this little girl, they would hire professional mourners. And we could picture that. People might hire a musician to play at an event or a funeral of some sorts here. But these guys, their job was to weep and to wail and to cry and all these things so that everyone in the community knows. They would play their flute and all this stuff and people would begin to gather and everyone would know. And Jesus says to them, why are you making a commotion? Why are you weeping? And then he says to them something they feel to be laughable. He says, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And notice they quickly transition from weeping and wailing to laughing and jeering. It says in verse 40, they laughed at him. Now the tense of that phrase is they kept laughing at him. And so what that means is they mocked him. Oh, Mr. Big Rabbi, look, we're professional mourners. We know the difference between sleeping and death. You stay to your little Bible stories. We'll handle the professional mourning and all that. And they begin to scorn him, laughing at him. Jesus, of course, he uses the term sleeping. He knows what he means. Jesus uses it as it's used elsewhere in the scriptures of a person that sleeps in the Lord. They have literally died. This is from the more well-known raising of someone, the story of Lazarus. It says this, verse 11, after saying, saying these things, this is John chapter 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, this is good. He'll get his rest. He'll get better. He'll be stronger. Now notice what it says in verse 13. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he spoke of actual resting in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. You see, Jesus uses that phrase about sleep, but he literally means what we all think of as death. This little girl has died, but Jesus knows he's going to awaken her in a couple of moments. She's just sleeping. And whether it's a couple of moments, or in Lazarus's case, four days, or in you and I, in our cases, it might be years or whatever until the end of things, and we're raised again into newness of life, but we're just sleeping. And so Jesus, he knows what has happened. He knows what's about to happen. First thing he does is he puts out the mockers. Look at verse 40. But he put them all outside. And he takes with him the mom and the dad. Verse 37 told us that. Uh, or this verse tells us that. And then verse 37 tells us Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples. He puts out the mockers and the cynics. He brings the others into the room with him. Because the mockers and the cynics are going to serve no good purpose in that room. This ain't going to work. Little girl, get up. Why are you grabbing her hand? She's already, look, man, get out. Already? And one of those nice sandal pushes that Jesus would have done. And may I just say this? Be very, very careful of mockers and cynics in your life. Very little good comes from palling around with those individuals. Sometimes you can't help it. You work beside them or you're married to them or something like that. You know, and sometimes it just is what it is. But if it's in the choice of your relationships, 
the folks you're sitting down with at lunch and things like that at work or whatever, and you're noticing it's always about doubting and lack of faith and cynical and sarcasm and all of that, that stuff finds its way into your heart as well. And you're better off just being polite and, you know, I'm going to go over there. You stay over here or whatever. It's just for your own benefit here. He puts them all away. And it's now Jesus and those seven, if I counted correctly here, uh, the mom, the dad, the three disciples, Jesus, the little girl, and taking her by the hand, he says to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Uh, that was Aramaic. Aramaic was the language spoken up in that area. Um, the, the Jewish people would have known Hebrew as well, most of them, many of them, um, particularly a guy like Jesus that taught and so on. And then uh, Greek was the common language that had made its way in because of the conquering and so on. And Jesus, I, I don't know why he switches over here uh, to this language, um, but he does. And it seems like it's a sweet thing of him that, for him to do for this particular family here. And he says, Talitha kumai. Now, that is not like abracadabra or, you know, hocus pocus arise or something like that. And believe it or not, there are people in the world today, Christians or so by name, that will use Talitha kumai to try to raise the dead or whatever, thinking that the magic is in those particular words. It's not in those particular words, just as it wasn't in Jesus's, the hem of Jesus' garment. All right? It's in him. Interesting, Peter would be used to raise someone from the dead in the book of Acts. Her name was Dorcas. Translation of Dorcas is the name Tabitha. And so Talitha, Kumai. So Peter's like, yeah, I'm going to give this a shot. Tabitha, Kumai. And it worked you know, or whatever here. Uh, but it was certainly, it was by faith. Verse 52 says, immediately the girl got up and she began walking. We're not talking about a little baby or, you know, some little child here. This is a grown girl, 12 years old. She's able to get up. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. I imagine that they were. And here's Jesus proving his authority even over death itself. And death is the one enemy of all mankind, isn't it? Some of us in this room, we may never struggle with disease in this world. Right? It may never hit us, may never impact someone close to us or whatever. Some of us will never knowingly encounter that spiritual dimension of the unclean spirits as the disciples did in that previous chapter or portion of the chapter. And some of us will never find ourselves in a terrifying storm like the disciples found themselves. But every one of us in this room we'll find ourselves face to face with death. Every single one of us, our own death and the death of those that we care about and that we love. And Jesus here, he demonstrates his authority even over death. And at once he proves himself stronger than death. Look, you see how simple it was for him? Grab her hand and say, little lamb, that's the wording, little girl, little lamb, get up. No jumping around, hooting and hollering, dancing, incantations, any of these kinds of things. Just simply reaching down and welcoming her back to life, if you will. And Jesus came here against a desperate situation that didn't just look hopeless, but for the rest of us looking at it, it actually was hopeless. And with just a few little words, he infused life into that desperation. And then he goes back to his old style, as he often did. He strictly charges them, don't tell anyone of these things. Now, how are you going to do that? Don't tell anyone of these things. Because again, you come back to this point here, where Jesus was not interested in drawing a crowd merely for the purpose of healing. His message was always more important than his miracles. And he would not have attention focused on the latter, on the miracles here, to the neglect of his message. And so... As I wrap this up, we have here two desperate people. Did I hear amen when I said as I wrap this up? I think I heard an amen from someone. That's rude. All right. But we have two desperate people, truly desperate people. And they come to Jesus seemingly as their last resort. They had tried everything else the world could offer, and they finally, they come to Jesus. And Jesus is so gracious. He responds. And I think if, if people did that in our lives, we'd be really tempted to be like, oh, now you come to me, now you need my help? You know, forget it. Or go outside and wait a little while, and I'll, 
I'll decide after you've suffered long enough. And yet Jesus in his grace, in his mercy, in this desperation when they come to him as last resort, he intervenes in both of their circumstances here. I'd like to remind every one of us in this room, I think it's somewhat normal to come to Jesus as our last resort. I notice a lot of times that I try and do everything in my power, realize this isn't working, and then I pray. I'm like, oh, Lord. Often, as I'm sitting with my sermons, I sit down, I'm getting all ready, I'm trying. And then like I, almost, always, almost every week, I'm like, Lord, I don't think there's, I don't think this is one of those God-breathed passages because I don't think it's helpful for you. There's nothing here, Lord. And then I'm like, yeah, I haven't really even prayed. And I say, Lord, please help me. They're expecting something. You know, please, Lord. And the Lord's like, hey, I've been wondering when you'd come by for a little bit of my help, you know, here. And so we oftentimes we wait. May I just remind you of this? We don't need to wait until the point of utter, utter desperation to come to Jesus. Some of us in this room, we may be at that place. Jesus knows your heart. He loves you. He knows the pain you're experiencing. But the reality is he would much rather that we come where we are. There's no need to descend to rock bottom and then come to Jesus. Come now to the Lord. Why go any lower? Amen? Remember these words. Jesus said to the, to the man, only keep believing. I think those are good words to chew on as we go from here. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that regardless of our circumstances, as desperate as they might seem, as helpless as we may find ourselves to be and as without hope as they seem to give evidence of. You can encourage us. You do encourage us. Keep trusting and keep believing. Father, this morning I think of the person who uh, has come around of late I don't know if that person is here. It's just something in my mind or heart. But that person who's come around, around of late because they were at rock bottom and in desperation and, and now they're beginning to wonder, is this all real? Is it all true? Should I bother the teacher anymore? Lord, I pray that you would encourage their faith right this moment. Refresh them. Give them just another little glimmer of hope to take their steps with you, to go with you you're about to intervene into their life's issue work in all of our hearts Lord make us desperate for you even if we're not yet desperate bring us to the end of ourselves even if we're literally not yet there bring us there we need you we pray in Jesus name amen thanks again for listening if you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.